Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Let's read that now. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now we have crossed over to the third and final year of Jesus' earthly ministry. We move from what is known as the year of popularity into a time called the year of opposition. And the key incident that scholars point to in order to signify this shift is the martyrdom of John the Baptist, which has caused Jesus to withdraw to the quiet for a short time. Since John was in a human sense family, this event looms in the background of this passage in a very strong way, but also serves as an ominous reminder of Christ's near future as well. But there is a sense of hope too. The sent disciples are returning from their mission trips with great reports. But at this time, both parties would be completely spent. Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, would have been emotionally drained after learning of this particular death and how it pertained to his own future. The disciples, after an intense period of mission, needed a breather as well. After significant missional endeavors, rest is very much appropriate and indeed recommended. However, we're told here that those plans of rest had to wait for just a little while longer because the crowd demanded otherwise. I wonder if you can picture the scenario and even the humorous way it went down. Jesus had departed from one part of the shoreline so he can go somewhere and grieve the loss of his cousin and debrief with his team. You can imagine that there would be heaviness and fatigue to the point that facing another crowd would need to wait until they had a short time to recharge. I can personally relate to that. Our ministers need to find rest or burnout becomes a very real possibility and there are all sorts of emotional and physical things we need to recover from along the ministerial journey. But while they are sailing off, the crowd Jesus is avoiding is running around the shoreline. So Jesus lands in another location, but sees the same faces. The cool thing here is that instead of asking them to wait, Jesus puts aside his grief and fatigue in favor of that amazing compassion once again. 
It's that same Greek word in action, the one that speaks of being moved and motivated in the depths of one's being. Internally, Jesus is hurting for these lost souls, enough to stop again and teach the crowds. And the disciples are not going anywhere either at this time. If you ever feel like you are bothering Jesus with your persistent calling out to him, take another look at this passage. Have a bit of a smile and relax just a little bit. If Jesus could put aside grief and human fatigue for the sake of 5,000 people in this instance, he's not going to reject our calls today. The compassion on display here is just as available from Jesus today as it was then. But we also see there is a point where the compassion of the disciples begins to wear thin. It gets late and the disciples are as fatigued as Jesus is, so they appeal to his human nature. Hey Jesus, it's getting late and the takeaway store is closing soon and we're quite a decent walk from there. You're tired? We're tired? The crowd is tired? So let's send them away to eat and we'll get this retreat happening once again. How does that sound, Jesus? Well, it seems Jesus isn't ready to end this compassionate burst of energy just yet, and he looks at his disciples and he encourages them to push through it too in this instance. His next statement was quite unexpected. You feed them. If you need clarification on what Jesus is saying, here it is. Your task, disciples, right now is to work out how to cater for more than 5,000 people. Now, let's leave that idea there for a moment. And we'll consider a new passage. Let's read Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 38. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people because they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. This passage on face value is almost identical, so much so that there have been suggestions that the writers of the Gospels somehow managed to double up the story, but the details suggest otherwise. John's account tells us that in the first setting, it was on the eve of a Passover, most likely the second last one of Jesus' ministry time, which helps us form a possible timeline between the second and third year, like I mentioned earlier. Luke's account tells us that this event took place at Bethsaida, which was to the north of the Sea of Galilee. This would be clearly a Jewish audience, 
and it serves as a fitting crescendo to the trips that the disciples had made to their own Jewish villages. The 12 baskets left over were Jewish-styled baskets. Uh, the Greek word are kofinos. They were small wicker baskets which were designed for a person to carry while traveling. They were intended for kosher food. The second event, where 4,000 people were fed, is presented in a very different setting. If you read the context, you will learn that Jesus has traveled into Syrian territory and on his return trip has chosen the eastern side of the sea in his travels. This would take him into the Decapolis again, where a demon-possessed man had previously been healed. It's here in Gentile territory that he feeds the 4,000. The seven baskets left over in the Greek were spurus. These were massive baskets and woven hampers. They were sometimes big enough to hold a person. In fact, Paul, the apostle, was smuggled out of Damascus in one of these sorts of baskets in Acts chapter 9. The two distinct settings combined show that Jesus was showing a significant part of himself, not just to Israel, but to the Gentile world as well. In John chapter 6, verse 25 to 35, Jesus goes on to explain his actions, and it reads like this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When the 5,000 were fed, the Jewish recipients, according to John, wanted to coronate Jesus in response. I have mentioned this before in other episodes. There was scuttlebutt among the rabbis that when the Messiah showed up, it would rain bread the way Israel had manna rain on them in the wilderness. The 4,000 strong pagans of the Decapolis turned to praise for the God of Israel as they see and hear all that Jesus is doing on their side of the lake as well. The Jews saw this as a messianic sign to the people, and I'm certain that we are to read it that way as well, given the passage I just read out from John's Gospel. The Decapolis folk saw it solely as a work of God they had till now been aloof from. The meeting of a physical craving was only to be a metaphor for the spiritual craving that was really there. The Jews craved the kingdom of God and were hungry enough to make Jesus a physical king. Jesus does present himself as the answer to that craving, but shows us here that the kingdom was designed to satisfy at a far deeper and eternal level. 
He wanted them to understand that their craving was in fact a spiritual one, which could be satisfied by the only form of nourishment capable of filling at that depth. Jesus, the bread of life, fills that deep craving. This is really amazing imagery at work as we ponder that concept. But sadly, that sense of pondering and wonder was not evident even in the disciples at this point. We soon learned that they were missing the point of these two moments. And this was a problem because in both cases and even beyond, their role was pivotal to the whole operation. We see this play out as Jesus completes the point in Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 to 12. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I might note here that in Mark's account of this passage in chapter 8, Jesus also includes the yeast of Herod in the mix. The disciples had been on one big adventure in missing the point until this last passage. They were perplexed by Jesus challenging them to find a way to feed the 5,000 in the first instance. They were blown away by the financial and logistical restrictions of that task and were not looking to the possibility of anything miraculous to occur. Jesus actually wasn't asking them to do an impossible task to make fools of them. He was asking them to look for a way through beyond what they saw on the surface. It was Andrew who caught on to that and made the bold statement of presenting a few loaves and fish. But the disciples were largely at a loss as to how to meet that need despite the fact that the source of miraculous provision was right there with them. And incredibly, they'd forgotten that miracle by the time they got to the Decapolis and Jesus asked them again to feed the crowd. Looking at the details, it was an almost identical situation. Surely someone in their midst would have had a light bulb moment, right? And then after that, just among themselves as they pack for a boat trip, they weren't fearing any better. As they boarded, they were still carrying on about missing bread in their boat. By then, it was enough for Jesus to step in and bring some strong correction and understanding to their situation. You see, each time Jesus came through with this divine provision of bread, Responsibility was given to the disciples to give it out. It was therefore highly important that they knew what they were actually distributing and what its source would be. They had to know that the bread Jesus provided in the physical sense was a picture of the spiritual sustenance he would continue to provide to anyone who would ask. They had to know that this was a God-ordained product to desperately hungry souls. They had to know that they were given the task of handing out that which Jesus blessed and multiplied, and that the sustenance of a hungry people, both insiders and outsiders of the things of God, was placed in their hands to ensure the masses could be spiritually filled. They were to be carriers and agents 
of the bread of life. They were to be its distributors. Its recipients fed the bread of life through their hand. But they also had to be discerning enough and diligent enough to know that what they were passing out was in fact that true bread of life and not a cheap substitute. That's where the issue of yeast or leaven comes into the story. Yeast was often spoken of as a metaphor for evil because it only took a little presence of it to negatively affect an entire product and the damage would be clear and irreversible after the influence made its undetected entrance. There were three groups of people out there thinking that what they had to say was bread enough for the masses. But in Jesus' estimation, it was a yeasty alternative to the more pure version that he would bring. The first yeasty alternative was that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the right sort of heart in many ways. They understood the mood of their nation and the sense of expectation that was in the air. They knew that God would be intervening in a pretty full-on way, even if they had no clue how. They made it their life's work to therefore make their nation ready for this impending intervention. They promoted holy living the way the Old Testament prescribed and imposed bylaws to ensure anything unclear in those writings could have more clarity. Sadly, this became more burdensome as a result. As noble as their motivation started out to be, it actually set them and the people up to fail. It led to a legal structure that the authors themselves could not uphold, and their expression of faith became more of a show than substance. They were reduced to simply looking the part and oppressing the people by looking perfect while the normal man had no chance. There was no transparency, no sign of personal weakness, and the nation admired them but could never live up to their hype or their law. Unfortunately, Jesus had a word for it and he made it clear in Luke chapter 12, the yeast of a Pharisee was hypocrisy, claiming to be one thing but demonstrating another, setting a high or burdensome standard that could not be lived up to. The bread of life found in Jesus does not look like that. The next group is an interesting one. There was a vocal minority group in the nation's leadership called the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. Neither did they believe in rewards or punishments handed out after death. In their thinking, there was a God, of course, but man was self-sufficient to the point of not needing him. The yeast of a Sadducee was therefore a dead and powerless religious expression, teaching a faith where eternity wasn't all that important professing a belief in God, but denying his supernatural presence and power. The bread of life found in Jesus doesn't look like that either. And finally, we have the yeast of Herod. This was the yeast of worldliness. Herod Antipas was considered a king in his local context of Israel, but he only had power because he was chummy with Rome. He was born in Judea to an Edomite dad and a Samaritan mother. His interest in Judaism was purely political, so he could walk the fine line between ruling on behalf of Rome, but still be somewhat popular with the locals. The interest in Jesus among the Herods began, of course, in a murderous way with Herod the Great. But we know that Herod Antipas was interested in meeting him at his trial because he was hoping Jesus could perform a sign or miracle for his viewing pleasure. 
There were Jews who were actively siding with Herod, forming a group called the Herodians. This group held a posture of holding loosely to their faith, but giving themselves over to the secular world at the same time, basically hedging their bets in uncertain times. Their faith would eventually come second to the world around them, and ambition ended up ruling in the place where devotion once was. The bread of life would not be found if one pursued that way of living either. The yeast-free bread of life, the untainted, sustaining life force that God alone could supply, would not be found in hypocritical religious observation. It would not be found in dead, powerless, and therefore pointless religion that knew about God from afar but had no intimate dealing with Him either. And it certainly would not be found in worldly, ambitious living. It would be found in that which was placed in the disciples' hands to distribute. Jesus, the true bread of life. Now, let's reflect on that together. If we are disciples of Jesus, then we are entrusted with a need to feed those which are the subject of Christ's compassion. But we do this with the full knowledge that we actually have nothing in and of ourselves to feed them. This is where Jesus steps in, and we are to point others to the bread of life that is Jesus. Sadly, there have been times where Christians and even entire churches have been content to offer bread that isn't quite as life-giving as it was intended to be. At times, we've picked up yeasty deposits to our detriment. It was always the intention that we would receive the bread of life, a sustaining and very real and satisfying experience of knowing God personally and being free to express who He was in an untainted way. We receive it and we understand that we are distributors of this bread to others. That's what Jesus is referring to when He outsourced the task of making disciples to us. As you consider that, what do you really have to offer? Are you convinced that what you are experiencing in faith is in fact that authentic, untainted, sustaining life force of Jesus in your life? Or is yeast creeping in? Are we authentic in our faith and imitatable at the same time? Or is there a bit of hypocrisy creeping in? Are we striving to be what we say we are without making everyone else feel inferior in the process? Or is legalism making its presence felt in and through our life? Is there a supernatural power and presence accompanying your faith, or is it dead and not really that engaged with God like it should be? Is ambition and the cares of the world getting the attention that the Lord once had from us? As the church of Jesus Christ, we are distributors of His bread, and this passage shows us that it's to be freely offered inside and outside the faith. Bethsaida and the Decapolis. In all settings, we need to make sure that what we offer is the real deal because society already knows what the fake stuff tastes like. So be untainted in your own life as you engage with the bread of life that is Jesus. And be generous in offering this bread of life to others everywhere you go, even if it interrupts your life from time to time. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.